When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. America is prepared to stand with you in pursuit of shared interests and common security. But the nations of the Middle East cannot wait for American power to crush this enemy for them. The nations of the Middle East will have to decide what kind of future they want for themselves, for their country, and frankly, for their families and for their children. It's a choice between two futures, and it is a choice America cannot make for you. A better future is only possible if your nations drive out the terrorists and drive out the extremists. Drive them out. Drive them out of your places of worship. Drive them out of your communities. Drive them out of your holy land. And drive them out of this earth. Donald Trump speaking at the Riyadh Summit on Extremism in May 2017. Promoting a reformation movement within Islam has been a preoccupation of European and American policymakers for almost two decades. As the argument goes, sections of the Muslim community have a predilection to violence that is justified by an extreme and intolerant reading of Islamic text. The prerequisite to create an inert ummah is for a European-style reformation movement to emerge that critically questions Islamic scripture and reclaims the faith from the scourge of extremism. This erroneous narrative has broad acceptance with the liberal left and the conservative right, differing only on emphasis and tone. Bush's ill-conceived notions of a clash within civilization and his winning the war on ideas rhetoric was indistinguishable from Obama's softer 
but equally malign policy of countering violent extremism by cultivating a message rooted in Islam and using Muslim scholars and intellectuals to front this campaign. The intended aim remains the same, to provoke an Islamic reformation. A recent US National Security Council policy document leaked to The Intercept magazine reveals some in the Trump administration want to go a step further. Included in the proposal is a call for a Martin Luther-like figure to bring Islam into modernity. The Reformation began with Martin Luther's challenge to the Catholic Church and ended with the personalization of European faith. This process, known as the Reformation, ended with a secularization of European society. The European experience of religious antagonisms has led many to believe that there is a need to sponsor so-called Islamic secularism. Many Muslims, some unwittingly, have echoed this call. The rise of ISIS in recent times has undermined attempts to return to an Islamic polity, with many Islamic groups blamed for stoking violence and sectarian hatred. This week, I asked Osman Badr, an Islamic academic, speaker and writer from Sydney, Australia, to discuss the idea of secularism. Osman is a PhD candidate, researching secularism and its foundational assumptions, and I thought it would be a good idea to take a deep dive into understanding its roots and development in Europe. In future episodes, we shall take a look at the impact of the policy to secularise Islam upon the Muslim world and upon the Muslim communities here in the West. Osman Badr, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam, wa alaikum assalam. And uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, uh, I understand I'm, I'm speaking to you on a Friday evening here, it's, it's fairly late here in, in the UK but uh, but of course you, you've just woken up uh, to a bright day in Australia, is, is that so? That's absolutely the case. It's a wonderful day. There's not a cloud in the sky. Uh, it's a, it's we're moving into our spring time, so it's a, it's a beautiful day today. I think it's 27 degrees. It's going to reach, and yeah, it's it's early morning here. Alhamdulillah, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Jazakallah khair, inshallah. And uh, now, Osman, I've I've uh, invited you in onto our show because. Um, uh, well, firstly, because uh, you know you, you are involved in in a number of uh, Islamic discussions, uh, I suppose, in Sydney, Australia, and uh, and uh, I've seen uh, some of your material, and and you've been invited onto a number of podcasts and and shows uh, discussing various aspects of Islam. But but also, I understand you are currently conducting research into the theme of today's show, secularism. Can you tell us a bit about your PhD research, please. Yes, yeah, so I've been doing. Uh, I've been uh, looking into secularism for a while now, uh, even prior to the PhD. So my MA, um, my master's in philosophy was also uh, obviously there was a large research component, one full year thesis that was also on the topic of secularity and secularism. We'll talk about that distinction. So, but yeah, the PhD is effectively on that topic. Um, it's uh, it's a bit more specific, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm trying to look at two aspects. One, the, this, the question of the conception of secularism, how it's conceived, what is it, in other words. Um, and number two, 
uh, in terms of the the way in which the political form as a political form secularism is legitimated how it's justified uh, can you give us a quick uh, a working definition i suppose of of secularism well i mean this is okay when when i say that i'm looking at i'm looking at the um the conception i'm asking the question what is secularism um that should sort of indicate that there's not any particular working definition as such um it's it's a it's a question that i mean we can give an, we can give a working definition but the whole point is previously certain definitions have been given and what this work tries to do is show why they're inadequate so for instance and i think this might be a beneficial way to start if we take a sort of a popular definition of secularism as um separation of church and state right so this is something very common and very popular secularism is sort of a political form of organization in which religion is separate from politics morality is separate from law or, or you know ethics is separate from law uh public is separate from private and uh, church is separate from state right various ways of saying it same sort of thing uh what 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 the work that i'm looking at does is sort of say hang on a minute to stop there that sort of is only on that that's accurate only on the face of it but if we interrogate this it sort of breaks apart because what you're saying when you sort of when you frame it as a case of me separation institutional separation um you're you're sort of missing the point that it it goes far deeper and you can actually show you can show it very easily so if we if we just start from this premise that it's the separation of church and state or or it's you know we're trying to keep religion out of politics let's take it that way we're trying to keep religion out of politics or well, straight away what that means is if someone's doing that if the government's going to try and do that how are you going to do that you're going to do that through legal mechanisms right legal and political mechanisms so that means you're going to have to tell us legally or you're going to have to define or mandate legally what religion is because if you don't if you don't sort of delineate what it is how are you going to separate it right so that means you're going to have to define what it is and as you define what it is since religion is not one thing right you know we took you got islam you got christianity you got buddhism and hinduism all these things that are generally placed under the title of religion but very they're very different right and particularly from this angle so when you when when you're going to have define that you're going to define it from a particular perspective and already as you do that you are doing much more than merely separating right so the idea we get is although the claim is or the or the claim is one of me separation sort of a you know this belongs here and that belongs there what secularism actually does is redefine uh religion in its own image in the way that it would like to do right and then it contains religion and so the point is this this becomes so now if you go back to the question if you ask me to define religion i'd say something like you know uh, or not religion sorry to define secularism i would say something like uh you know secularism is or the stress we will come back to the epistemic aspect the knowledge based aspect but from the politics angle i'd say that secularism is a form of political organization that tries that uh tries to contain and relegate religion to the margins of public to margins of life public life something like that right which would not 
generally be accepted or, or thought of, not accepted, but would not be thought of as what secularism is. But this is the point. This is where the this is where the work is being done and has been done quite a bit um, in terms of just understanding actually what secularism does. And I think we can appreciate the difference between something which merely, you know, takes something as a given. So this is this is the point. Like when you say it's it's separating church and state or religion and politics, you're assuming that it's leaving a thing as it is. It's relieving religion as it is, and all it's doing is saying you belong in this sphere. But what it's actually doing is redefining the whole thing, um, and 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 uh, and disfiguring it in effect. Right? Depending on which religion you ask, obviously from an Islamic perspective, we don't have this idea of separate religion and politics. So when you impose that, uh, already you're into a process of disfiguration as opposed to mere separation. But 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 Osman, um, secularism developed uh, in a historical context and it, it developed uh, largely, it developed in Europe and um, uh, European civilizations um, experience of religion was that of Christianity. And so in, in some sense, Christianity formed the template for religion and religion was defined uh, as a as a, a, a set of beliefs which accorded with uh, Christian principles. So I, so I suppose um, when Europeans set about separating church from state or religion from state or, or pushing religion to the, bound, to the, uh, to the edges of, of uh, public life, they, their only experience of religion was, was uh, the Christian faith. And, and I suppose by the point secularism developed I'm, I mean correct me if I'm wrong but, but we're sort of we're, we're we're placing this discussion and debate in the sort of 17th and 18th centuries yep, yep. when 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 secularism developed uh, religion in terms of Christianity was very much a secular creed is, is am I, am I, if, if that makes sense yeah yeah that's sort of roughly I mean this is where the picture is a bit more complicated so so if we talk about the historical roots this is a large part of my research to, go, to study the, the, the deeper roots, you'll find that because, as you said, because uh, secularism is so tied to this issue of enlightenment and just before that, you know, the so-called age of reason, the Renaissance and so on and so forth, a lot of the history, even a lot of the histories of secularism, even academic histories tend to start from the 16th, 17th century, uh, which is fine from a sense, but no idea pops out of nowhere you know, um, in the middle of history like that, there's usually deeper roots. And so I try and look at secularism going all the way back to, if you can call it the, the, the base of Western tradition um, in the Greeks. And then in fact, probably starting mainly with, with the Augustine in the third, fourth century. Uh, we can come to that, but the point, the point, you're right. Europeans were dealing or they were Christian by and large. And the leading Christianity, but the, the the complicated part of the story is is two things. First of all, even in Christianity, it's not a monolith, right? And already by part of the picture of the development of secularism itself is one of the major splits in Christianity between, as you know, Catholics and Protestants, right? The Reformation, and so already now, if if you say, well, they're dealing with the Christian model of religion, which one, right? And so and so this is where it's, it's, it's a valid point, but the story is a little bit more complicated because already you've got a split 
and although although there are still major overlaps in Protestant and, and Catholic conceptions of religion, there are significant differences, and particularly for the story of secularism, we, we find that Protestantism becomes a much more much more the template that uh, secular thinkers and writers use and happen to be in large part uh, than than Catholicism, right? Well, is that simply because Catholicism was more intertwined, I suppose, with uh, the European state, whereas Protestantism was more a malleable faith, right? It was more personal and, and uh, could easily be pushed to the margins uh, of civil life. Um, yes, yes, and maybe no, it depends. See, this is the point. Now, if we say Catholicism historically had a closer connection, that's because that, that was the only thing that was around. Protestantism wasn't around before, right? And so and this, so this is the point. When you, when you work on a history, and my, my, in child, the first chapter of my thesis is going to be the history of secularism, or a history of secularism, and it's, 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 that means it's around 10,000 words, right? And so what you find, if I could do it on the back of an envelope, I start with Augustine, St. Augustine, right? And what I try and, what I try and show coming off the back of work that's already been done by various scholars. On the one hand, I try and show that the seeds of secularism start very early. So you see with people like St. Augustine, his famous work is The City of God. And in it, he, he effectively come up with this distinction between the city of God and the city of man, right? The terrestrial realm and the celestial realm um, or the city of love, which is the city of God and, you know, the city of man. And so he's already... He's already divided and come up with two domains, right? And and already in this time we have this concept, which from where the from where the Latin word, um, the Latin the Latin word seculum, from where the English word secular comes, and the seculum is effectively um, the worldly domain, both in spatial and temporal terms. What that means is, so uh, in, in temporal terms in Christianity. You're gonna have there's a concept of eternal time and of worldly or secular time. And basically that means that the world we live now is the secular realm, it's the worldly realm, and there's another realm. Uh, obviously it's gonna come in the hereafter, and that but obviously that, that's eternal, it starts without beginning and it continues. So they've got that concern, but, but and also spatially, the world in which we live, the political realm, the world in which we engage is a worldly realm. And so you've got this distinction already. It's not secular in the modern sense at all. There's a lot of mixing, and obviously I don't have the modern concept, but the seeds are there, and you've got this distinction. And there, and the, and the point is that for Augustine, there is a, a a sort of a conflict between the two realms, right? And he's not, and he's not really trying to. There's no real aim for, you know, the city of God. Now, the city of God is is not a a ter terrestrial thing with borders. It's all the people who love God and, you know, sort of um, dedicate their lives to God and live in the right Christian way, right? But these people, and, and the other guy is obviously the opposite in the city of men, but he doesn't have a concept where you try, the people in the city of God try to, you know, influence, manage, organize the city of men. He's happy to say, well, this is the worldly life and we can only do so much and you know the actual the second coming of Christ is what will sort things out. So you can see where the seeds are there. Now, from there, if we sort of jump quickly to uh, someone else is very important, Aquinas, five, six, seven centuries later on, 
he does something all that's also very significant from the epistemic angle. So when I say epistemic, I mean knowledge-based. And the, so this, this is the two main branches you need to look at in secularism. One's a sort of uh, issue of reason, knowledge. How do we think? How do we arrive at truth? And the other one's to do with how we organize our society politically, right? So, so Augustine's very important for the latter. Aquinas is quite important for the former in terms of laying the seeds to differentiate between reason and rationality, reason and revelation, reason, sorry, not rationality, reason and faith, reason and revelation, right? And he does it in a number of ways, so I won't go into details now. Um, so you see that the seeds are there, and then, and this is, this is why the stories are just a little bit more uh, complex, as I was saying. You have to look at that history, and from this, what you find is scholars would do uh, the number of, there's a number of stories to tell, uh, in terms of the positions that scholars take. Some will say that sec modern secularism is a modern form of Christianity, in effect, right? It says Christ Christianity has a core to it, but it, historically it's had different forms, and that's fine. This is, this is Christian saying this, right? So they're not, it's not a criticism. Uh, that this is how Christianity has been, and you know this is one of the modern forms of it, and it's fine, no issues, right? We've come to accommodate that. Others will look at it more in conflictual terms that no Christianity, um, yes, it may have had the seeds for all this for this development, but you know, secularism is not Christian in any sense, and it has come via conflicting with uh, what would be a more genuine Christian way of life. Um, and I think the story is probably you know in between there somewhere that the the seeds were definitely there, but at the same time. Um, Modern secularism is very different to anything that even Aquinas or Augustine would recognize and probably approve of, right? So uh, there is an element of conflict and there is an element of um, modern secular forces making, making decisions as to, you know, what religion is, coming back to the question, and not simply going off what it was, in, whether in Catholicism or in Protestantism, right? And so I think at some level, we need to look at the modern secular um, as a force in its own right, right? And not something that just rises organically from any version of Christianity per se. But if we were to fast forward to, uh, I don't know, European Enlightenment society, um, why does secularism become a feature and, and, and a fairly and a very key feature of that process of rethinking political organization in, in Europe? Um, well, I mean, the modern period has certain realities of its own that become very, very important. Hmm. So, so talk, talk us through, talk us through those stages. So, okay, if, if we, again, back of the envelope, if we, if we um, move on from what I said about Augustine and then Aquinas, and there's a few other key figures um, who developed this. And it's not just ideas. Obviously, there's a lot of ground realities. Um, that that are key in the picture but in the modern period i think the person who's probably most influential is john locke um, at least this is how the story is told um so we're talking now you know mid 16th mid 17th century so the mid 1600s um and now this period is very there's a lot going on right uh, we have had a reformation. Uh, Luther has come and gone. He's very significant also to the picture. We probably can't talk too much about that. Um, well, well, let's look at Martin Luther. Is it fair to say that 
Luther's challenge to Catholicism also came with a redefinition, I suppose, of religion. Was Martin Luther the first seed in this process of secularization? Uh, and did he call for a separation of religion from state? He doesn't care. What, it was, what the Reformation does is uh, inadvertently, most you know, unwittingly, uh, for, forward the process of secularization in a, in a very intense way. But he's not, he's not someone who argues for secularism. He's, that, that vocabulary is not there yet in the modern form. And, um, and, and, and even when he does things that look very secular, he's still... So, for example, um, let's talk about this very briefly. Uh, the Reformation does a few things. Number one, it splinters Christendom, right? And so politically, politically, where for the last five, six, seven centuries, I'd say even a millennia, one millennium, sorry, uh, you, we've been having this very conflictual relationship between the papacy, the Pope, and the emperor, right? Or the emperors and the kings and the different principalities of Europe, right? Um, and it, but it's a relationship in which the Pope carried significant authority and power, and sometimes he, he was more powerful um, than the, than the emperor. At other times, he was a bit less, right? So it was it's a moving, it's it's a it's an organic process. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there. It's, it's oscillating, but still, Christendom is quite strong. What the Protestant Reformation does is splinters Christianity right down the middle. Massive, uh, you know. So in you know, in Muslim terms, we would say the cause the division of the Ummah in a sense, right? And so, with the splintering, number one, you politically weakened uh, Christendom or Christianity, and not and it's, and it's not just into two; it's not just into Catholicism and Protestantism. What happens is he he calls for reform. Others also call for reform, right? And then. They have disagreements amongst themselves. And because one of his main uh, points of calling for reform, one of his main sort of cries or calls is that there needs to be a return to scripture. We need to, we need to get out of this mediation through the Pope and through other people. Every Christian can interpret the scripture. Every Christian can go back and have personal relationship with God, right? And whatever the... Yeah, but, but is that not, not a challenge to political authority? Um, it, it depends on how you, what, what position you take on political authority. So what he did was, that's his position, right? And, and, and my point there was that, that that allows or that facilitates a lot of other reformers who he disagrees with. And so you have a splintering in the sense of, it's not just Catholicism and Protestantism. You've got numerous reformers and they all don't agree with each other and they all, you know, uh, there's a massive polemic amongst all of them. But when it comes to the politics, Luther is much more uh, amicable with the authorities in Germany and with the authorities elsewhere in Rome and, and other parts of Europe. He, and this is, in other words, he is very secular in the way he deals with the political authorities, right? He sort of leaves them to their work and he focuses much more on that. And that ties in with his theology because his theology is religion is a personal uh, relationship with God. Um, and, 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 and although he's not explicitly sort of going, you know, it's a, it's a private affair, you know, full stop, which is what sort of it becomes, 
um, but he, very clearly he he, uh, he facilitates that in a in a very strong way. Um, and so and so he doesn't he, he doesn't challenge political authorities. He keeps he's very much focused on challenging the religious authorities because his his whole crusade, if you will, is against the Pope and against Catholicism. Um, but the point is, what this leads to is obviously there is violence. There's you know what they so-called walls of religion, which is a certain way of framing it. You know, arguably not very accurate. It's half most of it's about politics, but obviously religion is used as it always is. Um, you've got, so by the time that John Locke comes to the picture, he's dealing with a state in which Europe is in a mess. Not you know, even previously it was in a mess, but it's, a, it's a, in a different type of mess, right? Where there's there's wars, there's English civil wars going on for for 20 years, and he witnesses these wars from 1640 to 1660. Um, there's and and what what's basically happened in each different country, say England, France, Germany is somewhere Catholicism is more popular and so it's in authority, other places Protestantism and wherever one side is in power, it's sort of repressing the other side, the so-called minority. And in fact, this is where the concept of minority also comes to the fore and is developed. But John Locke is looking at this and he's now thinking, how the hell do we, he's a, he's a philosopher, right? He's not a theologian. He's Protestant, but he's not a theologian. He's doing political philosophy and other types of philosophy. And he's thinking, how do we manage this situation, right? And that's typical as representative of a number of other thinkers before and after, you know. But he's thinking, how, how, do, we, how do we manage this? And what he does is effectively he goes, well, look, there's these massive debates you guys are having about orthodoxy and salvation and this and that. We can't have this, you know. There's no solution to these questions. And effectively he says, we have to privatize these. We have to... Everyone can decide, and everyone is every man is orthodox to himself, right? And but when you come to public life, they said this is why Locke is sort of explicitly secular. He's like, this is this is the first, uh, probably the first um, explicit theorizing of modern secularism, as opposed to older forms that we may recognize um, in retrospect. So he's effectively like, every man is orthodox to himself. Uh, you can do what you like, but in the public sphere, we're really going to have to, you know, leave these matters um, aside. He's not, he's, not, he's not willing to give that full sort of um, the full rights to atheists, for example, or even to Catholics, right, as a, part, as a Protestant. So there are rough edges, but um, this is probably the first area where that happens. And, and therefore, you know, after that, a lot of the thinkers, people like Rousseau, um, uh, Immanuel Kant in Germany, these people who develop these ideas quite a bit, but it's all on this model, basically, that religion becomes sort of a private affair. We understand religion in very Protestant terms as a personal relationship with God, the matter of morals and certain beliefs. And interiority, very important, very click on that. It's about, it's about your internal relationship and spirituality and so on and so forth. Um, and you know, and then and then by the time we reach the Enlightenment, it's this is already quite um, this is quite already developed because the Enlightenment, 18th century, uh, it already has these resources, and it sort of formalizes them, and they become much more mainstream. Right. Okay. So, uh, to what extent was the Enlightenment a a product of this linear? So you you've carved out. I understand. You know, it's it's not as clean cut as this, but. You know, you've got the Protestant Reformation, which uh, from which follows 
a very deadly conflict across Europe, um, uh, whether it's uh, the Thirty Years' War or, or various conflicts that raged around Europe over political authority, and, and most notably here in Britain, you've got the English Civil War, uh, from which someone like Locke arrives, and, and Locke has now been informed by the Protestant faith, and and he sees this world around him, and, and he tries to find a a philosophical approach to dealing with difference, and uh, and I suppose he comes to this fundamental view that secularism or or a a form of government which leaves these contentious, uh, unwinnable debates to the personal self is is the way forward. Um, to what extent does that discussion lead to uh, the greater the greater phenomenon that we now know? As the as the Enlightenment, the European Enlightenment. Um, yeah, as you said, the story is is complicated in certain areas. It's not as linear as I've told it. Um, the Enlightenment, as I said, I mean, it depends when you people date it differently. But if we live in the 18th century, a lot of these ideas are already they're there, like they've been developed. They're not mainstream, but they've been developed. They're being applied in certain areas, and by the time the Enlightenment comes around. Um, they're, they're very, it's, uh, it's very easy. It's a very easy way out. So if we look at someone like, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, in France, very influential, um, he's, he's someone who, because what, what starts to happen by the enlightenment, yeah, I think this is probably a good way of defining the enlightenment in, in, in another way. By the time the enlightenment comes around or in the enlightenment, you, you have even strong anti-religion voices, right? Which is new. Right in Christendom, you don't have anti-religion, anti-Christian voices. That doesn't happen, right? In part, you probably be killed for for doing that. But generally, it's a, it's a different way of life. People people may not be happy with their local church, but no one's atheist uh, in the sense of an atheist movement, right? But by the time of the Enlightenment, particularly in France, we have they called the philosophes. Um, they are explicitly anti-religion, and they come into attention the authorities, and they get in trouble and whatnot. But it's there. And people like Rousseau are somewhere in the middle. And you find those who were influential, uh, Kant, Rousseau, and others were generally the people that were in the middle. But, but being in the middle, they utilized secularism or the secular sort of ideas very easily. And that's what actually placed them in the middle. But what shows that the idea was really um, quite commonplace is for them it was more something taken, as, taken for granted. Right, so so what makes someone like Rousseau so secular, even though he he comes to the defense of Christianity and religion against the philosophes, is that when he does his political philosophy, his social philosophy, his political theory, it's secular and unannounced. You see what I mean? Like he, what he does is secular. We would look at it and go, he's doing secular philosophy. I mean, philosophy becomes secular by then anyway. But he. As opposed to, so the difference would be, you know, he's he, political, he, he, he writes, for example, a discourse on the origins of inequality and there's no references to the Bible, right? He'll give it some, some sort of, you know, marginal status here or there, uh, but that's, that's how he'll do it. He'll come up with his social contract, very influential theory, social contract, general will. And, you know, again, this is, this is, this is what's so secular about it religion has a nominal symbolic role to play in his entire social and political theory. 
right? And he doesn't need to announce that. And he's doing this while coming, while, while, while arguing against the materialists, particularly in France, the philosophers, and, and you know, coming to the defense of Christianity. This is how, this is how it is. Likewise, Kant, Kant says, Kant's got a famous quote, he says, I had to deny knowledge to make room for faith. Right? I had to deny knowledge in order to make room for, in other words, my focus is on making room for faith. He's actually trying to uphold religion. But by this time, right, Kant dies in 1804. So by this time, religion is already understood in secular terms. So, so my, my reading would be that the Enlightenment doesn't, doesn't, the Enlightenment just furthers and embeds secularism more, but already by then, secularism is quite, uh, it, it's it taken hold and a lot of the things and philosophy is, is secular by then you know, in, in a strong way you can't engage in these rational debates and discussions in the academy of the time w- without providing naturalistic reasons for whatever you're talking about right you look at any debates in the 17th and 18th century and you have to if you don't provide natural reason you're counted as a theologian and you're not really given the same sort of uh, respect now, Osman, tell me about the French Revolution and the American Declaration of Independence. Is it fair to say these political movements come out of this atmosphere of secularism uh, that has been generated in Europe through this philosophical debate? Is it a fair summary to say that these philosophical debates really led to uh, these new forms of political organizations being established in, in two very important states yeah yeah uh, with a few qualifiers but yeah roughly you can look at it like that and i think that what what they change is they bring to the fore a form of political organization that is much more explicitly secular right so it's one thing to have it's one thing to have for thinkers to give theories and publish books right it's another thing to actually implement them in in, in life, in the politics of the society, right? So the French Revolution, obviously, you want to get rid of the you want to get rid of the monarchy, you want to get rid of the the church, right? And so you come you come with a form of government that uh, is secular in the way that they understand secularism, and likewise in the, in, the, in American. But of course, the models are, are slightly different because of the different um, historical trajectories of, of both both places. Now, let's understand that. I mean, the French Revolution is very explicitly a radical one. It does away with religion. It kills the king, God's representative on earth. Uh, it, go, it does away with religious iconology. And so it's very explicitly anti-religion. Whereas the American uh, Revolution, the American War of Independence and its declaration uh, comes from a different perspective, I suppose. It's not anti-religion. Uh, even though, as you said, it remains secular. Um, is that a lot to do with uh, the uh, American settlers who came from Europe? I mean, these settlers were evangelical in, in their religious observances. And in many ways, did that have an impact on the type of government uh, they decided to uh, develop as a result of kicking out uh, the British colonialists or and, and secondly, I suppose, it, if that is the case, then why did they move towards a secular government? I mean, if, if they are um, ardent followers of religion and of faith, 
why didn't their political organization reflect that religious observance? I can understand the French secularism, but it's a bit more hazy why the Americans decided for a secular approach to government. Yeah, the the thing is, this actually shows us um, that there is, and it's always the case, there is there is organic and localized. Um, what's the word? Not, not motivations, but uh, causes to any historical development. And because the because the trajectories are different, the realities are different. You get you know various different forms of what otherwise maybe you know put together and they would under a larger title that's the same in this case secularism but what you find is there's 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 a, a big role played here by the form of religion in these places right well and, and this is so important and there's obviously big lessons in this for muslims and the quran is clear on this as well you know in terms of addressing addressing believers and calling to their attention how they might be pushing people away from the religion from 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 the dean uh, by how they um, act now uh, and I mean this not in, on an individual level but on a bigger level so uh, the level of society the level of state so generally speaking across Europe Europe you know if you start from the 15th century 16th just before all these events happen Europe is a very religious place and people don't people believe in God people you know but the, the church is becoming, um, you know, very lax. The church is becoming oppressive. Uh, not in becoming, you know, these things are happening throughout, um, even you know, all the way back to Augustine. Um, there's, there's different levels, of, there's different ways in which the church and the religion is operating in different places, right? Um, and you'll find that some places where the reaction where secularism was of a much more um, ardent type like france uh, is not is not um, coincidental to the fact that the way the church was repressing in those places was was uh played a big part in that right and so and so because in europe you have this you know catholic protestant fights this that the church and, in, and, and one of the big factors was when the, cha- when the sort of, when people sought to reform the church, because this is what it started off as, people just wanted to reform the church. They had no issues with God, they had no issues with religion per se. They want to reform the church, right? And, but when they're not heard, you get things like Luther, and then he, he doesn't want to just reform it anymore, he wants to get rid of it, and come up with something new and so on and so forth. But in some places... The, the the church, the representatives of religion were more open for reform, right? Like in England. Uh, other places, they were more adamant to remain as they were. And so, you know, they were... They, and, and the point is, it's not adamant to remain on the creed, adamant to remain doing the oppression and doing all the things that they were doing, right? And so the reaction was likewise. And so you see that this is more the case in France. But when we look at the US, and you go across the Atlantic, it's a very different reality altogether. It's a new place. People have come there. And what defines that place is, as you said, independence from, from you know, who they're, who they're looking at as people that uh, are coming from overseas. All right. And so it's a, new, it's a new place. It's a new 
uh, it's a new genesis. And you're right, right from the start, religion plays a big role in, in, in America until now. Even until now, in the, if you read the literature on secularism, one of the big questions that people look at, on, particularly on the question of secularization as a historical process, uh, is, is, is why do we have this massive anomaly, they look at it as an anomaly, in America, all right? Because according to, secu- according to the secularization thesis, the more uh, a place becomes modern, industrialized, uh, rationalized, the, the less uh, or the more religion should wane away and decline, right? But America creates a big problem for this thesis because it's, it's sort of the opposite, right? But, but that's because the thesis is wrong and it's very crude. Um, more recent uh, work that's been done on that is, is a bit better in trying to understand the thing. But, but yes, in, in some, um, because the historical realities are different in these places, the way in which the church responds is different, the political realities are different, we've ended up with, um, they're all secular, I don't think anyone would doubt that, but we do get these different forms of secularism. Now, now, what is the relationship between secularism and liberalism? Um, I'd say they go hand in hand, to be honest. Um, if we understand liberalism, and you, you, this is probably your area more than mine, uh, if we understand liberalism as an attempt to, or as tied to these notions of freedom, right? Freedom of opinion and freedom of conscience and freedom of this and that. Um, I, I draw the link in the way that it's important to understand these freedoms in the context in which they arise. So when it said freedom of belief and freedom of conscience, um, in part, what's being said in, in context of the history is the church has no right to determine anything. And a person can, if a person wants, he can be an atheist, right? In other words, this emancipation is first and foremost from religion and God before it's emancipation from anything else, right, in the, in the context that it takes place. And that's why it's so closely tied to secularism because that's, that's what secularism is also trying to facilitate. Um, and, and same thing, like, if you ask about, you know, the major thinkers of liberalism, John Locke is, John Locke is there as well. Um, and in, in his various tracks, Rousseau's there and Kant's there. So, so for me, the, you can't really separate these two. We could ask the question of sort of what comes first. But I don't think uh, historical developments, whether in thought or in political form, happen in this sort of way where it's clean cut. This is first, and then that comes. That really happens together, and 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 because we label things secular, liberal, you know, capital, even capitalism, I think is part of the story that you can't really separate. This is just ways in which we try and understand different aspects of it. But I think in the bigger picture, they they're really hand in glove. Now, secularism has a number of variations, Usman. Uh, we've got Anglo-Saxon secularism here in Europe, and we've got French secularism, and, and they're of a different type. Now, you've discussed the history behind that, uh, but uh, uh, I'm interested to, to, to really understand why that persists. Uh, in Britain, for example, uh, as, a, as a standard, members of the clergy still remain in the House of Lords, they have permanent positions in the House of Lords. 
And although religion still remains on the edges of British society, I think it's fair to say religion does have a role and um, it still impacts upon some of the institutions and on, on popular culture. Uh, maybe to a lesser degree today than, say, 10 or 20 years back, but, but it still does. And as you said, in America, uh, Anglo-Saxon secularism has really had a... Uh, a major impact and still impedes or impacts on uh, major pieces of legislation. Just think about the abortion debate uh, in America or indeed uh, the debate in the United Kingdom in, in Northern Ireland about abortion. Uh, religion still plays a, a very substantive role in, in deciding uh, how to determine that particular law. So how do you how do you untangle this these variants of um, of secularism? Yeah, yeah that, that's right. There, there are there are different forms of secularism in different parts of the Western world. Um, I I would tend to understand again if as I said if we define secularism as you know a form of containment of religion, uh, then what we have is different different societies based on their own historical, cultural um, trajectories and realities are open to different levels of religion. So they all want to contain it, right? So you're not, you're not going to have anything where uh, Christianity is the you know, main source of the way of life, for instance. That's clear. Right? But now how much of it do you allow? This is why I think containment is a good idea or relegation is a good idea. Because it's a, it's always a question how much how, how much containment how much should we put to the side and how much can we allow and that goes back to the history and the culture and which who's the minority sect and how it's just how it's developed and because what what tends to happen is you you, you come to a certain very contingent um, setup and organization in terms of how we understand secularism right and its relationship to religion whether they're completely opposed as the French understand them or they're much more, um, they can go a bit more hand in hand as you explained with the English. And likewise in Australia, I think Australia's got a very English model of secularism. And, and, and America's even further down the track, right? So, but that's just a different degree of containment, I'd, I'd say. Uh, but it's significant because you do have these different models. Uh, but I think if we understand it in this way, you can understand that they're all, they're all secular, no doubt. Um, but they're just allowing for different nominal, still very nominal representations of, of religion, in most cases nominal and symbolic. And it's not just that, there's more to it, right? So uh, when, when secularism travels, when it travelled to the Muslim world and the other parts of the third world, because they're secular as well, and obviously over there it was imposed, whereas in Europe it's, it's to a large degree more organic. Uh, when it was imposed by colonial fiat, You'll see that there we've we've got even different even other forms that are that are that are not only not existent in the um, in the West but would not be acceptable in the West. Right? So for instance, if we look at the Turkish model, um, you mentioned French uh, France's laicite in 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 Turkey they call it uh, in the literature they call it laiklik, right? It's it's basically the Turkish version of laicism. Um, but the Turkish model, and this is another thing that is, is there's, there's quite a bit of literature on this. It's trying to understand, again, everyone understands Turkey is secular, 
but what sort of secularism is it where, uh, you know, so in Turkey what happens is, and more generally in the Muslim world, you have ministries of religion, right? Now, the idea of the awqaf, the wazarat al-awqaf in Arabic, right? And you have this in, in every Muslim country, right? Um, and um, if you, the idea of a ministry or a department of religion, in, even in England, would be unthinkable, right? <laughs> if it would be blasphemous from, from a religious perspective. And so, and so, but still that's understood to be secularism. And I think again, this is why the idea of containment is helpful. It's the same thing. In Turkey, they want to contain religion, right? The, the Kamalist model, which we still have very much, sought to contain Islam. And the way he did it, however, is instead of separating the state from religion, was to make the state more explicitly try and contain that religion. And again, as we said, even in the West, it's not really a separation per se. It's just different forms of management, different forms of um, Foucault's idea of governmentality is, is used here a lot, and I think it's quite accurate. It's a form of how um, how you try and manage and organise um, politics and and society um, in a particular way, right? So, so, so you can you've got these different forms, and I said in the Muslim world. It's still understood as secularism, but it's very different. It's very, very different. The state actually does, it explicitly tries, tries to manage religion, and in many cases, not just within the country, but even internationally. Um, but I think this is, as I said, the way I would understand them is, you know, you want to contain um, religion and you do it. There's different ways in which you can do it. And I want to finish by maybe discussing, exploring uh, that angle a bit further. So we've had, we have experienced a process of secularization. And as you said, it's a very state-led uh, containment of, of religion. Um, but also we noticed there has been a, a backlash uh, uh, of this approach of secularization uh, and in a number of countries, and most notably Turkey, um, uh, but but a number of Muslim countries, we're now seeing a, a growing call for some form of Islamization of uh, those Muslim societies. Um, uh, in Turkey, you know, you have um, a very explicit uh, backlash, right, with a, a government that has sought to not question, I suppose, the secular foundations of the state, but but at least push back against some of the um, more draconian measures that come with such secularization. Um, so, so I suppose my my question is, um, well, my first question is, how deeply rooted um, is uh, this process of secularizing the Muslim Ummah, and 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 maybe linked to that, um, uh, can you give us some thoughts on? The, uh, the the backlash uh, that we can palpably see towards that process of secularization? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the main thing that differentiates uh, the models of secularism in the, in the West as opposed to the East is the fact that in the East, in the Muslim world in particular, it was imposed, right? And so, and so, and it was imposed in a particular way, you sort of got a proxy elite both politically and intellectually, you are these elites who are your mechanism through which you impose this. Right now, what that means is 
these elites who are a very small minority, although they're very influential, they they adopt secularism in a much more indigenous or self you know self-propelled way. In the masses, however, and this is a major difference, the masses in the West are secular. Like they, they, you can't conceive, you won't conceive of you know a backlash against secularism in the West, right? Uh, in, in at least in our current time. And it's not foreseeable in the future. So, or there are there are some Christian voices, I should say, even in the academy, uh, but they're considered to be doing theology and not really social science or philosophy. Anyway, that's it's a it's a fringe voice. But in the Muslim world, when we talk about the masses, secularism, the imposition of secularism and other Western forms of life have always been it's always been an uncomfortable, um, you know, status quo. It's always been a tension filled status quo. And the Muslims, and therefore the, the point is that. Although, yes, I would say secularism as a political form of organization is very embedded in the Muslim world, no doubt. And even the ID has found currency, but I don't think it's ever sat deeply. It's not, it hasn't taken root in the Muslims as, as a people, as peoples, right? And that's why we have, there are movements and calls um, against uh, or for Islam, for, you know, for for, for implementation, implementation of Islam that's much more in line with Islam's own conception of what, what you know, religion, quote-unquote, is meant to be and how it's meant to be um, part and parcel of a comprehensive way of life, you know, not politics and one side, religion on one side, and state separate from mosque and so on and so forth. So, so I think there's a, that's a big difference in the Muslim world. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, those efforts continue. And, and I think this is, it's, this is also why it's very important for us to understand uh, a lot of this discussion and, and a lot of the, what, what secularism is about and what it tries to do. Because, for instance, as we said, it's a type of containment um, and there's different ways in which you can do it. So we want to be careful. We don't want to be fooled when we go, for, just to take Turkey as an example, when we go from, say, a Kamalist model that's closer to the French even more, it's even more, um, it's even more French than the French, if you will, uh, to, to let's say we go to what Erdogan explicitly calls for, which would be something closer to England, right? Maybe a bit more, maybe a bit further down the spectrum, maybe more American or even a bit more, but it's still secularism, right? And you see, you see so when we understand that, that there are different forms, but it's still within clearly a, a, an approach that is relegating religion and using it in a very nominal and symbolic sense, right, and in a very private sense, um, then we we wouldn't be fooled. But if we if if we're not then, but if we don't understand this, then we say, oh well, you know, the Kamalist version is secular, but Erdogan's Islamic. Erdogan's an Islamist; he's just moderate, right? So I think it's very important to understand understand these these distinctions. But of course, the Muslim world has, has its own realities, and they're very different from Europe. Um, and that's why, as you said, there are these there are movements and calls for what some people call Islamization, and I think we need to think about how to get that process right, how to further that process, um, and a lot of these discussions are very important in that. And Usman, it, I think it's right to say that secularism or the process of secularization isn't an organic process in the Muslim world. In many respects, it's been forced upon the Muslims not just by dictators and presidents, but also by the West. I think it's it's uh, correct to say that the West has a 
a, a plan to secularize the Muslim countries. There was a recent NSA report which suggested that America is trying to promote a Martin Luther type figure in the Muslim world uh, to, uh, to, to promote or to become a catalyst for the promotion of secularization. So I suppose um, we've got this process taking place and, and um, uh, it's a, a process which is forced upon the Muslim community. But of course, many Muslims are embroiled in sectarian conflicts. Just think about ISIS when it came on the scene. It pointed its guns at Muslims, right? And it killed a number of uh, people who did not subscribe to its own version or interpretation of Islam. And so if you if you notice, there's been a uh, a, a gradual uh, increase in violence between Muslims and Muslim groups and Muslim uh, denominations. And uh, if the rationale behind secularization in Europe was to try to reconcile the irreconcilable, the differences that existed between Catholics and Protestants and other smaller denominations, isn't that the um, a similar picture now in, in the Muslim world? And, and so the, the secular salesman uh, may have some success in in this uh, really bloody environment. No, I think well, that's 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 the general thrust. That's sort of the um, that's the sales pitch, right? That secularism is a way in which to deal with plural societies, pluralist societies, and modernity has given us you know these diverse pluralist societies that are here to stay. And so, if we need, if if we are to manage this diversity of world views of religions then we need some sort of neutral platform and secularism gives that to us. And that's probably the, a major aspect of the discussion that we haven't touched upon today for lack of time, uh, which this aspect where secular, secularity as an epistemology claims um, a neutral position from which it generates knowledge and arrives at truth. And from a political perspective, uh, a neutral uh, form of political organization or a neutral state that you know it just manages everyone manages manages the difference because it's coming from this particular neutrality and that's a bit that's also a big part of my research and my thesis to critique this idea that there are any positions of neutrality so so again this is why it's important to understand this um, secularism does make that claim this is that is its major claim to being the best way right and obviously they'll accept as they do with democracy, it's got its problems, it's got its issues, but it's the best of you know the various forms we have. It's the same thing with secularism. But if you ask, well, why is it the best? Generally, apart from you know, historical narratives about how religious religions lead to violence, all of which are discredited, right? Because secularism has led to you know even more, if anything, uh, more magnitudes of violence in the 20th century, in the 19th century. So apart from that, the actual philosophical um, or ideological claim is this idea of neutrality. And, and so, but that too has been shown and this is, continues to be shown to be not true. It's just not true. There's no, you don't, you, you cannot come from some neutral perspective. Every perspective is um, contingent, uh, ideological, coming from a particular world. And that's clear with secularism, right? It's, it's, it's secularism is liberal. Liberalism is not a neutral ideology, right? And so, so, so if we understand that, number one, 
um, from Muslim apologetics or from a Muslim Dawah perspective, that's very important. It's a very strong argument against secularism and, you know, in, in at least critiquing secularism and initiating that discussion for particularly Muslim communities in the West, as opposed to being influenced thereby because, you know, you, you sort of were deceived by the posturing of the secular as neutral, which happens in the Muslim world, as I said, that the elite, that minority elite in the Muslim world, this is what they believe. They believe that, uh, you know, religion is not able to manage these things because, you know, it's backward or it's uh, very particular and it's not able to do what secularism can. But, you know, history, secularism is now 300 years old, at least in, the, in, the, in Europe. And, you know, the, the results are before our eyes. None of those claims hold water. Um, and, and so, although coming to the question, the core of the question, although it is said, the thrust of the argument for the Muslim world is the same thing, you know, you've got Sunni and Shia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you've got all these things and all these problems. Um, and therefore, Muslim, the Muslim world, and the diagnosis is that the Muslim world is not sufficiently secular. It's not sufficiently secularized, and the solution, therefore, is to become more secular. That's easily, um, that's easily sort of um, repudiated by showing that, first of all, there is no lack of conflict in Europe. And, and in fact, it, it, led to, it led to more conflict in the 19th century, colonialism all over the world, and the 20th century world wars and whatnot. Um, and so it's really a matter of just showing that the, the, the analysis is, is not correct. It's not about religion. It's not religions that cause these conflicts. There are various political, national, um, ethnic based, various, it's multifaceted in terms of why you have conflict. And, but of course, for me, the more important point is, uh, the onus is on them to try and show why they should be considered neutral. In what way are you neutral? Right. It's 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 most states in the West are secular liberal, or in fact, secularism is not doesn't have to be liberal. You know, the the socialist states are also, or the communist states, as they were, also secular, right? In a sense, and so you can have that, but it has to be secular something. Particularly if we aren't secularism in the popular understanding of just separation, it's just a negation, right? It's like okay. Religion stay on the side. Okay, but how are you going to manage society? How are you going to organize society? Like, how, how, what's your economics? What's your what's your political framework? What's your social framework? You can't. It's not going to be based on a negation, right? That's an obvious point. You can't just say religion. You stay here in the corner and let us take care of society. Okay, fine. How are you going to take care of society? Oh, we're liberal. Okay, but liberalism is an ideology, right? It's a particular worldview, or we're communist, and that's a particular worldview. And so it's just. It's sort of a, it's a sleight of hand and how it's become so uh, effective and, you know, convincing to people is, is something to probably to be looked at as well. Um, but, but yeah, I think in the Muslim world, it's, it, although there is, a, there is this danger that it goes down. I, don't, I, don't, but I think because you're right, there are efforts, there are systematic efforts to do that, but they've been around for decades. And I think what this shows is the fact that they're still, still around and they're being intensified is that, the resistance in the Muslim world has been quite strong and continues to be strong. And I think, therefore, the, these type of understanding can help us to really elevate the discussion amongst Muslims in our contexts and, and also and politi- particularly in our political um, 
resistance and our political uh, revival in the Muslim world, uh, they can play a, an important role. Osman Badr, Jazakallah Khair, thank you for your for your time today and uh, uh, my sleep beckons here on a Friday evening and your day uh, is, has just begun, I, I understand, uh, in Australia. And... Yes, it has. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be in the podcast and yes, uh, the day has begun here. It's a weekend, so. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.